Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining. I'm your host, Seth Haskin. I started this podcast to dive deeper into the ways we know one another and God. The goal is to ask the question of how God loves. As we dive deeper into personifying God, we have to bring him into our three-dimensional world, but also understand he lives in another state of being, the fourth dimension. I would love to welcome and thank our guest today. She has a bachelor's in psychology from Hamlin University and a PhD in psychology from the University of Iowa. She is a professor at Bethel University. I have taken at least four classes, I think, with her. Yeah, at least four, probably maybe more. Um, And uh, I have enjoyed every single one. Uh, She has a great personality that is engaging and contagious. If you are not excited about what she teaches by the end of the class, you must not have the right Dr. Rachel Anderson. (laughs) Let us welcome and thank our guest today, Dr. Rachel Anderson. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Seth, this is so fun. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, agreed to join me. Yeah, I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about all things with you. All things. Well, yeah. I'm excited to talk about anything. Great. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself to begin? Yeah, so um, yeah, I did get a bachelor's in psychology from Hamlin, but I also got a bachelor's in biology. Oh. So I was double major. I didn't see that on your webpage at Bethel. Yeah, Baffle. you know, I'm not sure where they got that information. So who knows? It's true, though. (laughs) I'm just down the road from uh, Bethel. And I was a double major because they did not have a neuroscience major. Got it. Right. So that was me attempting to make one. Make one. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Which I don't think they have one now. Maybe they do. Well, Bethel does now. Bethel does. And it's an amazing program. Mm -hmm. Shout out to the neuro majors. Yeah, you, you, Dr. Cortez, and Dr. Coro. Coro are heading that. We are. And it's It's great. It's so fun. It's a great major. Yeah. And so I was really interested in... Well, so I was a biology major first, Mm -hmm. and then I took an intro to psych class, and that stuff was super fascinating, but I was interested in more of the mechanism, the biological mechanism behind behavior, Mm. right? So all of these psychological concepts that we're interested in, I was like, how is that happening in our body? And so that led me to do a PhD in behavioral neuroscience in the psychology department at the University of Iowa. So my PhD is in psychology, but I call myself a behavioral neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not know what I was doing when I went into graduate school. Uh, I think that's a lot of people. (laughs) I know, but I want, I think I want as a a teacher here, I want to educate people about what that actually means to get a PhD Mm -hmm. because I was like, oh, more school forever. School, because I love school. Mm And that is not exactly what it is. Um, but so there I was looking at the experience of stress and how that changes behavior, mm-hmm. particularly like cognition and memory, right? How does the experience of stress change that and through what brain mechanisms? So I primarily did that in a rodent model um, where I was looking at how does the prefrontal cortex change, both structurally. So I looked you know, looked inside the brain, but also mm-hmm. behaviorally yep. looking at behaviors that the prefrontal cortex is known to be involved in. Yep. Um, after that, I did a postdoc. So a postdoctoral fellowship is something that's fairly common after PhDs where you're no longer in class and you're no longer trying to get a degree, but you're getting more experience mm-hmm. prior to going on the job market. I did that up here at the University of Minnesota. Um, in the medical discovery team of addiction. Mm -hmm. And that is a group that was recently formed there to study addiction, but through various facets. And the facet that I was looking at was decision-making. The idea being that a history of addiction typically leads to people making decisions that typically aren't the best for them. So what about a history of addiction causes someone to think differently about the decisions they make? Um, but I was only there for a year because I got this job at Bethel. At Bethel. Yeah. My dream job. Your dream job. Yeah. So uh, did you did you teach before Bethel? I did, okay. yes. So I taught it at grad school. I taught at the University of Iowa. Okay. And then at my, my final semester at the University of Iowa, I actually did remotely. Um, while I was writing my data and my PhD mm-hmm. thesis, mm-hmm. I taught at St. Olaf. Got it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yes. I so. was a cover for someone who was on sabbatical there. Yep. Um, so besides your academic accomplishments, are there any other accomplishments that you want to pull out there? Um, 
I it would not be me to not talk about my running accomplishments, <laughs> yeah. which is like such a I think I should let it go. Right. I'm like I, running is not who I am anymore, but running was a big part of my identity. So when I was in grad school, I was a semi-professional runner mm. where I wasn't getting paid. paid, but I was getting clothes to wear. Like they gave me clothes and would pay for my race fees. Um, I'm a distance runner. I don't have any speed. So mm-hmm. if you were Cross like challenge type. me in a mm-hmm. sprint, I would most certainly lose, but I can go forever. And I'm currently training for a marathon right now with my husband. And how's that going? Um, Are you beating I'm him? A, I, yes. He probably <laughs> will not listen to this. Yes. I'm currently faster than him right now, but I have I've been doing this a lot longer. All right. So yes. what's your husband's name and what's his mailing address? <laughs> I can send him this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So currently we're doing that. And um, so I really love running. And then I have a nine-month-old miles at home and miles is not named for running it Are is you sure i well so <laughs> actually i was talking about this yesterday with a mm-hmm. colleague of mine dr frederickson um and we were kind of talking about a student asked me if miles was named because i like running and i was like no but also subconsciously probably yes <laughs> yeah the subconscious does crazy things yes, yes. as you would know yes all righty um so you kind of gave like the answer to one of my first questions is what does an academic uh, behavioral psychologist kind of do? And you kind of yeah. did that, you know, research and stuff. Like yeah, that. but I'm happy to talk about it more. Um, so from a behavioral perspective, the idea is, is we can learn a lot about what's going on in the mind by just observing behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there are for all, there are a lot of reasons why even asking someone isn't the best way to know what's going on, right? Because sometimes we don't actually know Mm -hmm. what's going on in our body and brain. And so we say answers, but that's actually not. Like, which shirt do you prefer? Oh, the green one, but why? But why? I just like the color green, but why? Yes, exactly. (laughs) We don't know, right? We don't know the answer. So, I mean, for animals, it's obvious. The only way we know what's going on in their brain is to look at their behavior. But I mean, it's useful in humans and too. In fact, most of the time tells us more. so a behaviorist is interested in behavior for behavior's sake. I also am interested in the biological mechanism. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't I'm not I would not consider myself a true behaviorist in the sense of I'm not interested in separating brain mind from behavior, mm-hmm. but I do think we learn a lot from behavior and as a, as a field of psychology and neuroscience has grown I feel like we have really gotten into like, oh, we can record neurons and we can individual do all of these things, individual neurons. And so we don't need behavior. But the problem with that is and is that we can know what neurons are doing, right? I can know when a neuron is spiking and when. But if we don't know what the behavior is or what the behavior is for, what's the point of knowing yeah, the neurons? Yeah, it's a doing? very reductionistic versus yes. like holistic type yes. thinking. Yeah, yes. It's one of the big battles in biology and stuff. Yes. So. And so a behaviorist... I mean, from my perspective, what I do is I have a question in mind, and sometimes it is stems from what the brain is doing or what I think the brain is doing or I'm in, interested in what the brain is doing, but I'm going to examine it from looking at and observing mm-hmm. behavior. Yeah. So like a great example, you worked with addiction. Yes. Like you can see the behaviors of addiction, yes. but you can also look at like what that those collection of neurons are possibly doing. doing. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's what we were interested in. So there are three you know, different systems that we think about when we think about decision-making and we know what parts of the brain are involved in those Mm -hmm. very circuits. And so when I see an animal making a certain decision or relying on a certain system, I can make inferences about what the brain is doing because we know what brain regions are involved, Mm -hmm. right? So I can now look at this complex decision-making system and say, okay, there's probably something going on with the striatum, Mm -hmm. making them rely more on habitual yeah. Behavior. Yeah. And that and like looking at neurons can also kind of predict behavior, but Abs- not but not yeah, exactly. No, but but yeah, we are getting a lot better at that, mm-hmm. right? So we can now take neural recordings and based on that predict what an animal was doing. Mm-hmm. Um but you do need both, Background. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, you need I think I I think we're starting to get a resurgence again, but there was a while where behavior was kind of thought as a lesser science Yep. because it doesn't have the fancy tools mm-hmm. and we're not, you know, I'm not You're seeing electrodes like in your brain. I'm like looking just, at rats. Yes. What are they going to do? Yes, <laughs> exactly. And people are like, well, that doesn't take skill or whatever. That doesn't tell us anything. And then I think Except I would argue the opposite yeah. is true. Yes. <laughs> you need to 
know how to condition and yes. train a rat to yes. do something so that you can record later yes. those behaviors. Absolutely, yes. Because yes. then you have brain circuitry that's And it's not as easy as people would think it is. Yeah, I would know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking conditioning and learning. So, you know, we're kind of doing that yes. idea. Yes, yes. So with all the information you have as a psychologist, like PhD, mm -hmm. um, with a biology and right. like neuroscience field, but also as an educator at Bethel, um, I want to ask you some questions uh, about relationships. Sure. Um, so I always ask a question. It is the question is, what comes to mind when you hear the word relationship? That's a great question. I think what for me comes to mind is um, connection. Mm hmm between individuals. And I, I say connection because I think for it to be a relationship, it has to be more than like a passing, right? A connection between humans is more than just like, I see someone on the street and I wave to them. That's not a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's I on some level know you, you know me on some capacity. And I think that varies. I think a relationship doesn't have to have much, but there has to be something more than like, um, randomness like i just see you mm -hmm. but it can be with anyone and i would put animals in there too i definitely mm -hmm. have a relationship with my dog yeah yeah you love your dog i love my dog yes yes <laughs> um so do you categorize relationships consciously subconsciously do you have like different ways of picking out relationships i definitely have conscious subgroupings that our culture has told us mm -hmm. are meaningful right so i have friends that like, and unfortunately, they kind of goes into a box, right? I have friends, I have colleagues, mm -hmm. which sometimes transfer into the friend yep. group, right? Um, I am married, so I'm in a relationship with my husband, um, marriage. I have a child, so I'm a parent in that kind of capacity. So I think I, I consciously have groups of friendship or groups of relationships that I box people into. Do you think they're like Venn diagrams though? Sometimes they can overlap. Yes. Okay. Yes. I do think that. I, I do think that, but I think at some point, once the overlap becomes more, mm -hmm. they actually like, right. So I have colleagues and they are technically colleagues, but th I think of them as friends first because mm -hmm. they've, they yeah. have so much of that overlap has happened where I don't even think of them as colleagues, even though by definition they would still be a colleague. Yeah. Do you draw clear lines sometimes between relationships? Or are they No, more... I don't think I do. Okay. I don't think I do. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know any of these people, but I think one could argue, like, I'm not going to be friends with my colleagues. That's my work life, and then I have my personal life, mm -hmm. and I'm going to try to maintain that line or yep. that boundary. I absolutely do not have that, of course. Um, so, no, I don't have lines. I do, I think, have groupings that naturally occur, but I don't have lines or boundaries to keep people in certain stations or stages yeah. of relationship. Yeah. Do you think it's beneficial to kind of have blurred lines instead of like concrete, like I bold? Do, yeah, okay. I do. I think because I think what happens with those kinds of lines is that you end up missing on potential mm -hmm. in a relationship mm -hmm. um, between that person if you have boundaries that are hard and fast. Yeah. And I'm guessing like thinking that from like a parent perspective, you know, there, there may, for me, I think would be a little bit more of a bold, but not like super bold. <laughs> Yes. That, Between like, I'm, I'm like your parent. But, ooh, that's such a good you know. point that you're making. Um, yes. So personally speaking, mm -hmm. as a child, right, which I am, right, mm -hmm. I was friends with my parents. Mm -hmm. And I do think actually, though, that became problematic as I got older. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in high school. And I'm not really ashamed to say it. I think my mom was one of my best friends, mm -hmm. right? And then what happened, though, was there got to be a point in my life where I needed probably more parental oversight. Mm -hmm. And that was hard given our my perception and our the way we acted was more yep. friendly. Um, so I think that's a really interesting point. And, and the problem is, is I want to be Miles's friend. Mm-hmm. But that is going to make it really hard <laughs> well, I think to that, impose certain 
boundaries that I'm going to have to have. Yeah, I think as he gets older, I think there's a balance though. There's um, yeah, I don't know if there's necessarily a middle ground. I think there's a balance. Yes, there is a. I'm your parent first. Yes, but I can also be, be your friend. Your friend. Yeah, I think for me, as he gets older, that is going to be a challenge. Like mm-hmm. the one that I'm going to have to really like work on. Yeah. Yeah. So well, and. What better way than to try it on the first child, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, the guinea pig. The guinea pig. Are you the a first child? No, I am the second to last. So how, I wasn't how many? quite spoiled, okay. but um, there are five of us total. So it goes my brother, Tyler, Cody, Jacob is the middle, Tyler's the oldest, me, then the youngest, Jeremiah. You're all boys. All boys. Your mom had five boys. Yes. That poor woman. Ah, uh, She loves it, though. <laughs> she says it all the time, though, so... <laughs> Maybe it's because we spoil her. I don't know. Oh, that's so sweet. I hope Miles spoils me. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I think first children are the like, what even does it mean to keep a child alive? Yep. We're going to do all the things. We're going to give them all of the anxiety. And then we figure it out. <laughs> yeah. There, there are definitely like personality traits to, I think, you know, different. I think there are. I think there are like traits that are much more common in firstborns than lastborns, mm-hmm. for example. And they could be flipped depending on the parenting. I think so. Like they're like, oh, we're just going to like be yeah. nonchalant yeah. with the first child. And then they're like, oh, wait, now we got to yeah. be stricter. I think, <laughs> but I think that's a lot less common because when yeah. you have a kid, you can read as much as you want to read mm-hmm. and nothing will give you any idea of what you're getting into. And I know that's such a cliche. I say it as a fresh mom that I had no idea what I was doing and I thought I did. I'm very intelligent and I read and I've taken child's development classes and I was like, nope, no idea. We're figuring it out. I think that goes for anything. Though. I think like, so too. You read self-help books and you're I like, t- oh, I, do I too. can do this. And then like you have that memory or like you're teaching a class yes. like conditioning yes. and learning. Yes. And you're like, oh, I know all this. Yeah. And then you have to But actually, it happens. Yes. Yes. But the stakes are a lot higher when you're raising a human. Oh, yeah. 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 Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, what comes to mind when you envision a relationship with God? So that's... N- I, my answer is different now. Yes, that's okay. why I ask it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, along with not knowing what to expect when you have a child, you cannot understand the love. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a love that I, it overwhelms me with love. And it's truly in this unconditional sense of, I really think he could do anything and that love is going to, like, still be there. Um, and... I don't think until you're a parent you under, like have that capacity to understand that. Mm-hmm. And I see myself in such a different light now because I know that God loves me like that. Mm-hmm. Which you can like imagine like, oh, like, you know, you can kind of say that God loves me unconditionally and he loves who I am no matter what. And you can have those words in your head and even believe them. But until you kind of love like that, you don't understand like how much or experience something experience. similar. Yeah. Yes. And so I do, I can now see though and understand how I could be a total screw up and God is going to love me like through it all and like so intensely love me. Mm-hmm. Right. And it actually has made me love myself a lot more because before, I mean, it's like, how could someone love someone who like screws up or whatever, all of these things and you're so hard on yourself. And then you realize that, I mean, so to me, the, the short answer to your question is, is I see God as like, as a parent figure mm-hmm. who loves me. Like I love miles and that love is crazy. Yeah. I think. And, and even still, I don't think we can understand the way he loves us, but I think I'm yeah. closer than I was before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it, I think it's so hard to understand who God is and how he yes. loves. I mean, yes. that's why I started this podcast. Yes. yes. Cause it's like, well, why would God love, you know, yes. this, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you know, you hear like Jesus loves everyone and God loves everyone. And you see all these people who you have trouble loving and you're mm-hmm. like, okay, I don't get it. God, like you want me to love this person. You love this person. And it's very hard. But if you're thinking about God as someone who loves his children, like the way they talk about it, right. Mm-hmm. Then you start to understand. And, and honestly, I love everyone. Like now as a teacher, I'm like, oh my gosh, someone loves you so much. And I'm thinking about their parents like I'm thinking about you guys as just being like someone's most loved thing Mm -hmm. and it honestly has changed the way I see the world 
it sounds so stupid to say. No, but it, it I really think it does. Like changing your framework about how you view God, because maybe when you were younger, you thought God was just like this policeman, yeah. or a giant yes. Santa Claus in the yes. sky. Yes. You do the right things, yes. you get presents. Yes, yes, you know? yes. And, and it, now it's changed. It's totally changed. It's totally changed. And I'm, and I think w- that's been one of the coolest things about being a parent is seeing that change or to have that change, that revolutionary change. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're going to dive into the inner workings of the mind. Awesome. As, you know, uh, students of psychology and neuroscience and as a professor of psychology and neuroscience. Uh, You teach a class here called Conditioning and Learning. We've talked about this already, and I love it. Yes, great. I love this You have to say that right now. (laughs) I appreciate it. Yes, (laughs) uh, I have to say it, but I would also say outside of class. Okay. um, And this moment. Okay. Um, Some of the things we learn in class, I think, can be quite applicable to the way we view, like, people and the way we know people. Yes, I hope so. And how, like, you know, addiction works, you know, per se, and stuff like that. I mean, there are other classes as well, Mm -hmm. but this class kind of gives, like, the behavioral aspect right. of it, which is, I think, important to understand because some of the times we don't have electrodes that we can plug into someone's Absolutely, head all the time. Yes, correct. So behavior, I think, is something that we need to observe more when it yes. comes to relationships. Do yes. you agree? I totally agree. Yes. So um, can you give a fun example of something that you teach slash learned in uh, conditioning and learning that you maybe apply in a daily life? Oh, man. Or <sighs> sometime in your life? Okay. I mean, the reality is for good or for bad, so many things are learned, mm-hmm. right? Um, things that you don't even want to teach someone necessarily are learned. Um, so I'm going to start with an example that I hope a lot of people have seen as kind of a reference of what I'm talking about in the extreme. Yep. Um, but I suppose The Office is kind of old news now. No, yeah, everybody still watches Okay, it. cool, mm-hmm. great. So, Which one, the British or the American? The American, <laughs> right. So th- that is a good qualifier. The American version of The Office, there's a scene in which Jim is trying to associate two cues for Dwight, mm-hmm. right? Are you familiar with the scene? Yes, the Altoid. Yes, the Altoid. Okay, mm-hmm. yes. And so this is always a funny example, and I use it to illustrate like the ridiculousness of it, but also how we work. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Right, and so... Jim is trying to get Dwight to associate the sound of his computer rebooting mm-hmm. with getting an Altoid, Yep. right? And so Jim restarts his computer and it makes a certain sound and then he asks Dwight if he wants an Altoid. And I'll, and, and uh, Dwight's going to reach out his hand for it, right? Because he has yep. to grab the Altoid. And he, it's something that he enjoys. And he likes it, right? He does like Altoids. That is actually a critical part, right? If he yep. didn't like it, you wouldn't get this behavior. Um, and so he does this a lot and... There's no, it's not an active learning situation in which Jim is like, okay, Dwight, I'm going to restart my computer. And when you hear this sound, I'm going to give you an Altoid, right? Most of our learning is not in this, you know, college experience where I'm telling Mm -hmm. you what you need to learn and write it down and you're going to be tested on it. It's a very passive experience. And so with multiple trials, we see that Dwight reaches his hand out for an Altoid when Jim reboots his computer. And then finally what happens is Jim reboots his computer, does not offer Dwight an Altoid, and Dwight reaches his hand out. And then I think, my memory may be failing me here, but Jim's like, what are you doing? Or like, Yeah, he's like, he, what are you uh, doing? And, and he's like, I, I, uh, I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> exactly. And... It's outrageous, and I think, you know, the first time I show it to students, they're like, oh, that's hilarious. And what they don't understand is this is how so much of their behavior works, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing things because they have these associations that have been built unconsciously, and then if you were to interrupt them in the middle of that, they would be like, yeah, hmm, why am I doing what I'm doing, right? Um, And so, you know, typically we associate that type of learning with animals. But are animals. It happens with us. I mean, yes. you think about the way marketing oh, is no, well, that's exactly it. a feeling with yes. their brand. That is how advertisement works. Yep. Advertising is classical conditioning, right? You take something in which we already have a feeling, good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the time good, right? So the Coca-Cola one is like classic, mm-hmm. like it's textbook classic. So at some point, Coca-Cola decided to use Santa Claus 
and Christmas time and polar bears and polar bears as like their marketing in the winter, right? And Christmas is something that we grew up feeling really good about, like Christmas mm-hmm. is family and love and togetherness and joy that we don't need to be conditioned, right? We already experienced that. And now the idea would be is you could have never had Coke before. If you see it paired with Christmas enough, it should make you feel happy and joyful and family. And so you buy it because you want to feel like that all the time. Same thing with McDonald's. Expand on that. Like the uh, whole, you know, you bring your kids there when yes, you're growing yes, up and yes. like it's a family yes, friendly and it's yes. like this. Nostalgia. And now, and, yep. Or it's like road trips. If and you always you get, get on food, the road. Which is a dopamine you rush. Know, exactly. Rush, so. And so, I mean, I, it's just how how life is. Yep. I mean, it's hard for me to even come up with examples because it's so much of, of who we are and what we do. Um you know, I think in college particularly, you think learning is Socratic method. Like I sit in a room and I mm-hmm. hear someone talk to me and then they call out things and I answer them and that's how we learn. And that's a very small percentage of how we learn and what we learn. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Um, exactly. So, yeah. and I, and you kind, you base like the classes that I've taken with you, you are Socratic, but you also include all these other aspects that I think help students That's what I'm hoping. Remember it. Right. And so so through my understanding of how we learn best, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, we don't learn best by listening to someone talk to us. Yep. That is what feels good to students because that's what, well, one, it's like what we perceive of is what learning is. Mm -hmm. But two, it's pretty easy on your end. You come in and you listen to someone talk and you hope and you assume that you're learning. Mm Mm-hmm. You're not, yep. right? You have to actually actively engage and try to put these things together for yourself. It's it doesn't it's not going to make any sort of connections that stick unless you grapple with it. And so I want students to talk through problems and make connections that I'm not explicitly telling them about and try it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get feedback that's like, I feel like I'm teaching myself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Because I can't get in there and put it in your head for you, right? And you want to just listen to me talk, and I want you to learn. And sometimes those two things are different. And so, yeah, sometimes it does feel like you're doing a lot of it. But if I want you to learn, which is my goal as a professor, you are going to be an active participant in that. Yeah. Right? So let's keep on the train of learning here. Yeah. You know, um, there's one thing that I really wanted to talk about with you when it came to learning and relationships. Yes. And it's called habituation. Yes. Um, I think habituation is everywhere. Yes. You know, like. Yes. And I just want to talk about it. So yes. can you describe what habituation is? Yes. So I'm going to talk about it simply first and then we can get into it a yes. more complex. In short, habituation is when you stop responding as you used to, to specific stimulus, right? So a very like classic example for me that I think a lot of people can relate to or Mm -hmm. understand is like when you put clothes on in the morning, you feel them. Yep. And then you don't feel them. Like you've habituated to that feeling, right? You're not constantly feeling like you have something on your arms or legs or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a stimulus that you stopped responding to that you used to respond to. Yep. And that can happen quickly and it can happen over days it can happen over years yep perfect yeah all right so you kind of dove into my next question is how would it affect everyday life yeah besides clothes besides clothes okay so we can talk about relationships i don't know if you want me to start right there nope you can talk wherever you want okay so habituation is sign fatigue Yep. Right. Okay. So you're driving and you drive around a lot. You kind of know when to stop and when to go, when are the stoplights are. Mm-hmm. What um, the speed is. The speed is, right. All the things. You're actually not paying attention to the signs at some point. You yep. have habituated to those so much so that. I know it, where my exit is. I yes, don't even have to yes. look at where road 43 yes. is. Yeah. So much so that sometimes you can drive and you end up where your destination is and you don't really remember any of mm-hmm. the drive. Mm-hmm. So this is why if you've ever noticed. Um, traffic changes they draw your attention to it there's a lot of signs that like traffic change up ahead like we have changed something you need to start paying attention because you're used to a stop sign here and now there isn't one Mm -hmm. or now there is one where there wasn't classic example is changing traffic lights to roundabouts yes yes (laughs) people just go yes yes exactly and so you they know that you've habituated 
to all of those signs and signals around you and you're not noticing changes, right? And so they have to be like, there's a lot of signs typically right before and after a change in traffic Big signals. orange ones. Yes, to be like, what you are expecting is no longer there start reading signs again, right? Mm -hmm. Like pay attention. But it's the same with like COVID um, when people were putting up a lot of hand-washing signs and things. At some point, people stopped seeing them and reading them and taking them in. And so science would actually suggest that you move the signs periodically because otherwise you're like literally ignoring Mm -hmm. what's right in front of you. You don't see it. It's just habituation. So there are things like that. Um, But it's habituation to... um, your daily coffee, right? Mm-hmm. You become habituated to the feelings of the sensation of coffee. You could become habituated to the classroom in the sense that what might have given you, um, you would have increased attention when you first got to class as a freshman, right? Like mm-hmm. you are a freshman in college. Everything's new. Everything You're is new. You're away from family, everything. You're away from family. You feel a lot of pressure to do well. You come into a class and you are feeling like maybe anxious or excited and you are super, you know, on your A game. That does not last long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by midterm or first semester, you see students like they don't feel what it was when they first got to college, yeah, right? It goes away. You've habituated. Mm-hmm. Um and most of habituation is purposeful, right? It doesn't do our bodies or brains any good to always be acting as if everything is new. That's very overwhelming, right? Mm-hmm. Sensory overload in a very yep. true sense. But it's also disappointing because what happens is, I'll just speak for myself. My husband and I have been married for five years. I've known him for eight. When we first met, we would talk all night. And I just would get like almost sick to my stomach when I was around him, mm-hmm. you know? And now it's like, oh, hey, how was your day? Like, it, it just loses its, like, intensity. And, and I think the problem is some people expect to feel that kind of on-edge excitement, nervousness with a relationship. And then when that goes away, they think it's because they don't love that person anymore. Yep. And it's just a biological phenomenon that is supposed to happen. Yeah, because when you are around, let's say, a crush. Yeah. Like, when you first meet them. Yeah. Um, you're very attentive to what they do. Yes. So you're you're that stimulus is very new. Yes. So you're gonna pay attention like if you were a freshman in college, yes. you're gonna learn that first information probably really well. Really well, yes. And so like you're gonna learn about their behaviors mm-hmm. and what they like, what they dislike, yeah. what their birthday is, yeah. you know, all that. Yeah. And then um, as soon as like th- that feeling is very physiological yes. as well, like yes. your heart rate increases, you start sweating, you get like a lot of circulation to mm-hmm. your brain and stuff, and so like you get these hits. Yes. And so. Um, uh, that's very like, you know, stressful on the body. Yes, you know, it is. all the yes. time. If that oh, yes. would happen, that's exhausting. Called, yeah, it, yeah, it gets exhausting. So your body's like, okay, this isn't a new stimulus anymore. Yeah. And so then maybe you're not as interested in learning the yeah. about them anymore. So like, you're, let's say you're in a dating relationship right. or like you're married, mm-hmm. you start to like, you're not asking like the learning questions right. anymore. And so it's like, and you kind of take it for granted. Yeah. But I think what I see a lot is that then people assume. That they've fallen out of love yep. with someone because love in the movies and the way you initially experience it is way more intense. Yep. And when that intensity goes away, I understand why people feel this way, but it's just not true, which is, okay, well, we've lost the spark. Mm-hmm. I really hate that saying. <laughs> like, There's you no more didn't, chemistry. It, you didn't lose the spark. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, some people do fall out of love. I'm not saying that's not possible, but when you're equating that feeling with love you will fall out of love with everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just impossible to maintain that level of physiological arousal, like the heart rate and the sweating and the super intense interest for a long time. Yep. I mean, there are things you can do to get back there. It requires effort and work and kind of a mind shift. Yeah. But I just, it makes me sad when I, when I, I mean, this is no longer, like I'm not in college, right? So I'm not hearing about people's loves lives that much. But, like, with friends and stuff, and it's like, oh, it doesn't feel the same. Well, it's like, of course it doesn't. And that's actually good. You feel safe and comfortable, and it you know them. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you don't feel like, who is this person? Like, I'm with a stranger. So exciting to figure out who they are. Like, of course. Of course. And that's why I want to talk about it, because I think it's something that people don't necessarily realize unless no, they, they don't. take conditioning and learning or, yes. like, do their own reading or something. Right, exactly. Movies do a big disservice. Yes, they do. For... Unless you're the, you know, like, 
the I love Into the Woods, the second act. You know, it's like after the happily ever after, what happens now? Yes. Or like those mov- those types of movies. Yes, like- and I think we are starting to get a more broad range, but particularly for like the teenagehood or even younger. The rom-coms. The rom-coms and stuff. Mm-hmm. It just sets up a very unrealistic expectations of what relationships should look like and feel like. And... And then when that feeling of excitement and, you know, all of that starts to go away, you either start to think that something's wrong with you or something's wrong with your partner or it's not meant to be. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, you're just going to bounce around from relationship to relationship because eventually that feeling goes away. And we see that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think we see it a lot more um, since the introduction of the Internet where you can be anywhere and get all these examples of what love looks like. Yes. And also you're also being confronted with a bunch of different people all the time. We're like, well, what about this? Or what about this? What it would be like comparison. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, yes, yes, that's absolutely. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I've talked about uh, social media on here before. I'm not calling it evil, but I am saying we have to be aware. I am with you. Uh, I would sometimes call it evil. Sometimes, yes. But I think it's evil in the sense when you're not aware. When yeah, you're not cognizant, cognizant of it. And yeah. Cognizant of what it's doing to you and your mind. Yes. Because social media can be a drug for some people. Oh, 100% is a drug. It uh, affects the dopamine response. So It's addictive. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think you could argue DSM addiction. Is that yeah. real or not? But regardless, people feel the need, like the true need to check in. And they get... Right away in the morning. Anxiety. Like if you if someone mm-hmm. loses a phone, all like that person is on the hunt mm-hmm. to look for that phone. They're n- it's not they're not okay until they know where that is. And you know it's like it's not even just necessarily social media, but just, yes, just technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's mm-hmm. if I lose my phone. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch in there like FOMO or like yeah yeah. There's selfish FOMO, then there's like selfless FOMO. I think there's mm-hmm. a difference. Like there's selfish FOMO of like I want to be experiencing something all the time. Mm. And then there's like selfless form of like, what if like an, an emergency happens and yes. I'm not there or yes. somebody's trying yes. to get a hold of me and I'm like their, yeah. you know, backbone to like right, the situation. Right, right, so right. I think there's two aspects. And so like both of those have their own influences yes. on the yes. idea of addiction. Right, right, right. You know, and yeah, I mean, I we can see this with like um, patients who are man- manic. Um, they don't want to take the drugs because oh, they, yes, like, they like that feeling. They yes. like the feeling Correct. of being manic, you know, yes, yes. so because then they don't feel like themselves. Right. And I think that can be the same said for like, I'm not saying people are manic about their phone or whatever, but, but in some sense, like they, they don't feel like themselves without something. Yes. And yeah. So like, you know, I mean, that could be identity, but not necessarily yeah. manic, but right. Yeah. So. I've, I have a lot of thoughts about social media, which we can talk about if you want, but <laughs> I think uh, I'm with you in well, general. Well, I think we're going to have to have another episode together. I would love to. I could talk forever. Uh, Don't get me started. Well, we're in the right place <laughs> yeah, then are. because we both can talk. I think my family can attest to that and people around me. So Yes, as your teacher <laughs> occasionally, I do know that you love to talk. It's not bad. I just noticed it. Yeah. I appreciate it, well, actually. I, I, I don't know where it came from because I always get certain teachers saying like you're the one student who like asks the questions that everybody else is thinking or is afraid and to we're so appreciative of that and it's just like ask questions i'm not students. trying to inflate myself here no but like that's the compliment that i always get i'm like i just don't know where that came from i don't know it's fine just just, I, we love Maybe it it's conditioning you it know could be i felt good when i had the right answer and i had or is it you know i mean we could talk about it from a attention not that you're an attention Seeker, Seeker, Mm -hmm. but it does for some people, not everyone, but for some people, it does feel good for someone to be paying attention to them. And that's Mm -hmm. not, that's not wrong. But like, if you ask a question, typically someone has to pay attention to you or the whole class to answer (laughs) the question or the whole class. Right. For some people that would be reinforcing. Now, people who don't raise their hands, typically that's a very aversive stimulus, which is why they could have a lot of questions and they won't be asked because they would hate for someone to look at them. Right, or for me mm-hmm. to look at them or whatever, yeah. potentially. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of bring it back to the God aspect of okay. Um We are talking about habituation in relationships mm-hmm. that can happen, and there's everywhere. Yep. It doesn't have to be uh, necessarily with, like, a romantic interest. No, but it can absolutely. Be with friendships. Absolutely, like you're yes. just taking advantage of the – we're consistently together, so we're taking advantage of that consistency, and yes. we haven't gone vulnerable or, like, right. positive absolutely. in a while. Yes, so. any type of relationship mm-hmm. absolutely can experience habituation and does. Yeah, so do you think we – have habituation when it comes to our relationship with God. Absolutely. <laughs> Can Absolutely. You yeah. I mean, 
So, I mean, I, I don't... I don't want to say anything and, and have anyone take it the way as, like, criticism. Yeah. Right. But... I do think habituation happens with God, particularly if you have come to just accept the relationship you have with him and not question it at all. Mm. Okay, so... Um, I love that you said that. I have more to say on that later. Okay. Let's continue, though. Um, so I think any person is vulnerable to this, right? There's not a type of person that's, yep. like, not going to necessarily habituate to that type of relationship with God. But I would say that if you... A stereotypical example of this would be you grew up with a family of faith mm-hmm. and you're, you went to school, church and the Sunday school and this is what you did and this is what you believe. And you go to Sunday every day, but you're like not listening, right? You're just like there. You're doing the motion thing, right? I think, I think going through the motions going is something the motions, yep. that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, you kind of just habituated to like, yes, I believe in God. Yes, Jesus loves me. And it's not like that's a bit that's as deep as kind of it goes. Right. For a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what I'm hoping and now what I think I see a lot in Bethel students actually is they come here and maybe it's something in their class or a friend or in chapel or whatever that makes them like wake up and be like, whoa, whoa, you know, I actually haven't thought about that in my relationship with God. Like, I don't know what that means for me. And then you start to think about it. Or they're getting questioned about how they how believe. They, exactly, yeah. yes. And and that, I think, is when you kind of get out of your habituation bubble. When you're starting to be like, what is my faith? What does it mean to me? Why do I, right? Which is the you know question that as a behaviorist, that's what we're interested in, the why do you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're not necessarily wrestling, but if you're, in a search of or more of like in conversation with, I think that's when you can get away from that habituation phase. But then you will go through seasons of habituation again. You get comfortable with the relationship that you have and what this means to you. And once you do something regularly enough or think something regularly enough, it will become background. Yep. Right. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's just a reality. No, that's what the Bethel bubble is. Yes. You know, d- yes. The Bethel bubble for the audience who doesn't know is basically so Bethel's Christian campus. And you're surrounded by a big faith community most of the yes. time. And you can become habituated to this faith yes. community even when you are being challenged. Even absolutely. I would totally agree with that. And I think, so I did not go to a Christian school yep. for college. Um, and because of that, I was kind of, I don't want to say defending. Defending mm. is not the right word. But I was a Christian on campus and not everyone was. Yep. And so if people wanted to talk about Christianity, I was one of those people that people thought of, right? Mm-hmm. So that meant I was talking about a lot and I was talking to people who were not believers and I was I was talking to people who were believers of a different faith. Mm-hmm. And that kind of keeps you on your toes. Yes, it does. And here And that's the real world. And that is the real world. And that's and what I mean by the Bethel yes, bubble. And you, you don't get that. Our sometimes. students no. Mm-hmm. That's not something that you guys experience. And I think for some people that's great and that's why they come here. But yep. I do think at some points, it could be a disservice because you're not getting to question and talk to and have conversations with people who may be different than you. Yeah. yeah. And it's not a bad thing to have doubt in your relationship no. with God. It's, I would say it's expected. And honestly, yeah. I would say for people who think they've never doubted. I, I doubt qu- that. <laughs> I doubt that. And I also then question how much you're actually thinking about your mm. relationship with God mm-hmm. if that has not been a season for you. Yep. Yeah. So. And and I would also say that just because you've maybe doubted once or had questions and then gotten through that, I would not say that that means it's it that's it for you for the rest of your life that you won't doubt or have questions or seasons where you're like I don't know about this and it changes. Um just like a marriage changes with various mm-hmm. times and stages of life, so should and will your relationship with God if it's an active part of who you are and what you believe. Yeah. I think there's this idea in America and the Western culture a lot that there's this state when you have this, 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 and this life it is, is good. done. Yes, it's done. done. You, you finished, don't have to worry. You've, you've finished yes. it. You finished it and yes. you will live the rest of your life. And like, that's not how life is. It is not at all. Because the person that you married five years ago, right? Yes. Five years ago is not the same person they are today. And won't be and in won't 15 be. years and from now. Yep. And you won't be. Yeah. And that's why I think I uh, would probably renew my vows when I get married because like, I'm renewing with a new Different person. person. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's a healthy way to think about it. Yep. And and it doesn't have to be expensive. It, 
<laughs> you could do it on the beach. <laughs> on a vacation or something. I don't know. Oh, that's expensive. Let's just say you can go to the courthouse. Or just take a moment and be like, I'm recommitting to you. Mm-hmm. Like in who you are. You don't even need... I mean, it's fun to celebrate, right, with family mm-hmm. and friends. And, like, we've made it 15 years. We're going to do another 15. Like, we've seen some things, and we're recommitting to the and we're stronger next because stage, of those right? Yep. But or, I mean, my husband loves Excel, and he loves data and tracking stuff and all of these things. And we, like, audit our relationship. Mm. Like, what is going well? Mm-hmm. What needs some work? Whatever. And when you do that, you get a sense of, like, recommitment of – like, we're doing good, and I feel loved here, and I feel seen here, and I feel heard here. But this is what, you know, like, this has changed for us, and you're starting a new thing, and that's taken up a lot of your time, and I need this. And it's a, like, it gives you an opportunity to recommit and re, like, get out of the habituation of this is the way we do things, and I'm not even seeing you, and we're just doing life mm-hmm. simultaneously instead of doing life together. Yep. That's Which that's an different. interesting yeah, I like that. Simultaneously together, you know. Yeah. Two I mean, things. you'll hear you will hear people say like, Oh, like we're just roommates, right? Like we're just like living in the same place, but like having these separate lives, which is what for a lot of people roommates are. Mm-hmm. You don't want that in a marriage. No. <laughs> Especially uh, if you're a follower of Christ and marriage is seen as a covenant relationship. Yes, you right. Know, it's very involved. Yes. And it mm-hmm. and you and for, I think most people want that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, bringing, bringing that back to God when it comes to like renewing your vows with God. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I think you can audit your relationship with God yeah. too. I mean, and it doesn't need numbers or spreadsheets, but it's, uh, <laughs> that would be funny though. <laughs> I mean, you could for those of us who are data inclined. Right. But it's a kind of a questioning of like, where do you feel strongest in your connection with God? Like, where are you seeing him in your life? Like, where, when you read the Bible, what are what is clicking to you? What is standing out to you? Like, where do you read and you're like, this, I don't understand this. I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm grappling with this. And then deciding, I mean, we can talk about learning in this too and committing to new behaviors, right? If you're going to re-kind of commit to God, do that in community, mm, right? Mm-hmm. If Like anything, if you want to really sincerely see a change in your behavior, and change in a relationship, um, accountability, right? I mean, I think going to church every Sunday is, like, one thing, but it's, mm-hmm. like, having conversations and having people who, like, when you're, like, exhausted and stayed up all night studying and you're, like, this is not my priority. It's, well, I'm meeting my friends, and then afterwards we're getting coffee and talking about, like, where we're at right now with this. And um, I think you got to keep your relationship alive. Yeah. How, uh, do you think scheduling disturbances in certain habits would help with that? <laughs> Such as like being questioned about your relationship or. Yeah. I mean, know. I like the way that you said scheduled disturbances because habituation is when you have a stimulus that's presented in your life and typically it happens at the same, like it's very similar. Right. And because it doesn't change, it becomes background. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it takes conscious effort then. To like reorient attention. Like a date night. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so for animals, right, if they've habituated to something, we add a different stimulus and then see if they reorient, right, to kind of grab attention. If you don't have that outside stimulus necessarily, right, like something disrupts you or you have someone else who's talking to you or whatever, you can do scheduled disruptances. Like you can say, like, have something in your calendar every six months that's like your check-in thing. And you're like, okay, yes, that's right. I was supposed to be thinking about this. This is an active thing. Like it can be as simple as that Mm -hmm. just to kind of, you know, reorient. Or I could say you could also do more in-depth processing, right? Journaling Mm -hmm. is like such a, I don't know if it's in or what, but it's good. There's science behind taking time to write about what's going on. And you're going to be much more. Yeah. You're going to have a much more active relationship with anything that you are consciously taking the time to think about, question, um, reflect on. Yep. That's not going to be background noise if every single day you're taking that time. Yeah. Yeah. So trying to not take things for granted. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that goes for, if we're talking about a relationship with God, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Relationship with friends. Yep. Um, relationship with a significant other. Yep. Um, Relationship with yourself, 
relationship with your children. Yes. You know, like something that I like to do um, uh, is kind of like what the Stoics kind of did is like memento mori. Like find mm-hmm. the memento moris in my day. Yeah. Where it's like reminding me of death, but not necessarily. It doesn't have to be death. It could be something else. Like yes. reminding me of like. What would my life look like if this person was absent? Yes, absolutely. Well, that is actually one of the key things to do if you Mm -hmm. want to stop habituation of the things that are really good in your life is actually it's like a cognitive mental test. Mm -hmm. Like imagine for even like just five minutes, imagine your life without insert name, insert whatever, and -hmm. try to actually feel that. If you actually are able to like have a, like a meditation on that, you will have this renewed sense of And it's okay to gratitude. cry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because if this were real, right? If, I mean, if I think about it too much, of thinking yeah. about losing my husband, I will. Like, it's Break un- down. Yes. Yeah. And then the, like, the little annoyances of the day or the habituation of he's just in my life, he's a person there that mm-hmm. I can count on and becomes much stronger. And it's like you have such a, you feel, you're going to feel so much more of the stuff that you used to feel when you first met that person, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, that you will- You start thinking of it as more gifted than granted. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So. And so I think you could do that through journaling every day. I mean, I think there's like apps that will be like, remind you of your impending doom if you really want to get graphic. <laughs> like, <laughs> and really think about how short time is. I mean, yeah. that's another thing I like to think about. I mean, life is long, but it's also really, really short. And when you do the math about the things that you think will happen a lot, actually aren't going to happen for a lot. Yeah. As much as you think. Or like thinking about something a different way, like time. Let's yes. take that aspect of it. If we were to think about it as currency of our life. Yes. How you am should. I spending y- your time. my time? You know, yes. some things are are, are unavoidable. Yes. Like, just like, I have to spend money on food and water. Absolutely, right. So I have to spend time driving to work. Right, you know, like, but, those but the are things where, are, where they're not, right, where yeah. you do have choice, it's do like, you want to spend it on your phone scrolling? Yeah. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, there's there's a whole, whole array of self-discipline books out there yes. that you can read about anything, time management or whatever else. Um but it comes back to like the question of we know this knowledge and sometimes it's just hard to, to apply do it. Yes. Like you teach a conditioning yes. and learning class. Yes. Yes. You know that you're going to become habituated to things, but you still end up becoming habituated. Yes. But you and maybe yes. don't want to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned it earlier, but just being consciously aware of it and like even setting reminders or whatever will help. Um, I have lots of feelings and thoughts about self-help books. Um, which are largely that behavior change is hard, mm. really, really mm-hmm. hard, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's really only one way to change your behavior, which is reinf- reinforcing it in some way. And I'm not meaning like explicit, like you get chocolate every single time you do something, but changing I mean, even your but mind. Yeah. But, but, but <laughs> yes, like studying, I did that to myself in college, right? Like you, after reading one chapter, you get a study break and I got to eat as much what, chocolate as I wanted and then you go again, right? But it also can be like a shifting of a mindset, right? Like what, if you think about time then, like if you decide to shift your mindset and think of time as money, you will, if that's a lot easier to change behaviors than too, right? It's just changing Intrinsic motivation and intrinsic reward consistently enough where it becomes not a lot of mental work or a lot of challenge to actually implement that behavior. And with relationships, when it comes to changing your mindset, I think the reward is the relationship. Yeah, and it feels good, right? And that's why we are a social species. Mm -hmm. Like people have asked, like, what do you get out of a deep conversation? Like, what is it that's reinforcing about that? It's connection. Yep. Connection is intrinsically rewarding to us. And so... When you take stock of relationships and stop taking them for granted, you will feel more joy and intrinsic reward in your life because connection is rewarding, mm-hmm. right? And people have various social needs, mm-hmm. but everyone needs. Some people are more extroverted than others. Right, some right. More introverted. And some people just need two or three people that mm-hmm. they feel close connection with, and some people need more. But everyone needs that. Yes. For mental health, well-being, all of those things. And so... Yes, if you try to re get out of your habituation mindset when it comes to relationships, you will be rewarded for it. Truly, mm-hmm. it will be, feel reinforcing to you. Yeah. 
But it is an active practice. It is. It's a mental discipline, like growth mindset versus fixed mindset. This is talked about almost everywhere. Yes. Because it is the determining factor for if a behavior is going to change or whatnot. Yes. Yes. And so if you decide, you know what, I'm going to take stock of my relationships. I'm going to put in things to make them stronger, right? I'm going to call. I'm going to thank someone. I'm going to acknowledge someone or tell them how much I appreciate them. Make and I'm going to do that on a regular basis. Most important people in my life. Yes. yes. Give them a text or a call Absolutely. every, every week or two whatever, weeks or two weeks or, yeah. or whatever. And if you do that frequently enough, I think you're going to be, well, first of all, way happier. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, actually a lot of like happiness is not about what you get, but it's what you, I mean, not about what you get, but it's what you give, mm-hmm. right? People are happier when they're giving friendship, right? Cause it's, it feels like I'm checking in, I'm thanking someone, but that makes you feel good too. It ends mm-hmm. up being rewarding for the giver. Yeah. Right. Um, and you will also get out of the, I take my relationships for granted. And these are just people who are in my life who are living life simultaneously with me in yeah. my area. Mm-hmm. in my dorm, in my classroom, in my And it, it, there are many studies to show how relationships and your ideas of relationships around it can be directly correlated with your feelings of happiness. Yes. So, like, the idea of ignoring relationships yes. is kind of hard for me to grasp when it's so important to how we function as social beings. Yes, absolutely. It, yes. And I, I, I think for a lot of us, I mean, maybe now like the most intense days of the pandemic are over, mm-hmm. right? Like we're, mm-hmm. we can't maybe even remember the quarantine phase. But um, I think if that didn't tell us how strongly we needed a social connection, I'm not sure what it's going to take. But I think this idea that we were all... By, like not by ourselves necessarily, but we were isolated in some capacity from one another. If that wasn't enough to be like, wow, this is something I should prioritize and really like make sure that I, you know, take care of. I don't know what will. I mean, I haven't seen anything like that in my lifetime and I hope never to again. But unfortunately, we've already habituated to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of us. Yeah. And I think the active part about that, because yes. like people can come out of COVID and expect things to be to the go way back they, yeah, and that it won't. won't and it's just because everyone experienced a traumatic event of yes. like being isolated yes um and so that experience can have other psychological effects yes. you know like you feel like you have loss of control yes. over your life right and that's a big determinant factor for like how you feel Perceive and anxiety yes. and depression mm-hmm. and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so like if you start to change your mindset and this is cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. right mm-hmm. um where you start to Think about your thinking. What are you thinking? What's important to you? Start changing your mindset about that. Give control over that. I'm doing this in this relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And thus that relationship is going to get stronger. But you also feel some sort of control over that relationship. And then that control can go everywhere else. And I'm not saying be controlling. No, but but it does feel like you have a sense of agency. Agency. Thank you. That's a better word. Agency. Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. I think, I do think the... a fallacy in our thinking is thinking that no action will just lead things to be the way they were, mm, or mm-hmm. you'll feel the same way about that person. Learn like hopelessness. It's, yes, yeah. and and it's just unfortunately not true. But taking even tiny steps of action, like you said, has this like ripple effect where once you start to reap the benefits of those actions, you're more encouraged to do more of them, mm-hmm. and you will feel a lot better. Yeah, we're coming close to the end of our time here, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again on I this hope so. episode yes. because there are some other things that I want to talk about, yeah. but I'll have to go back and listen. Yes. <laughs> Be like, ah, yes, that's right. That was in the middle of 30 minutes and 60 seconds or something. Oh, that'd be 31 minutes yes. then. <laughs> yes. Um, so there are two main questions that I want to talk about, and the first one is, do you think it's important to understand ourselves? and the relationships we have to understand our relationship with God? Um, no. Okay. I don't. Um, I do think it's important to understand our relationships and our ourselves within those relationships. I do think, though we are built in God's image, mm-hmm. right, and that Jesus was here and lived among us, 
I don't think understanding our human condition and our human relationships will truly tell us what God is like and how God feels towards us. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think right. I think the becoming a parent is as close as you probably can get. But I I I believe that God is unknowable, mm-hmm. and as a scientist, that's challenging. Yep. I liked. I would love to be able to say that I know how God sees me because I know how I see Miles and how I feel towards him and mm-hmm. that I can mm-hmm. study the bond and the relationship between a parent and child and understand the relationship that God has with me and that I have with him. And I don't believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. But it can give you some sort of insight, not fully, but yeah, like, I do think some. we get there and I do think it's, I mean, it's made me change. It's made me see the world differently. It ma- it's made me see me differently. I have a lot more grace with myself and mm-hmm. love for myself. Um, I just want to be realistic with the sense that I do appreciate and believe it to be true that God, there's mysteries about God that we'll never know. And for better or worse, actually, that kind of gives me comfort because mm-hmm. otherwise mm-hmm. I'm going to try to reduce him into something that I can study and quantify. And I think um, that loses a lot of the power that God has. Yeah. And my last question is kind of already answered in this podcast. Um, what have you learned throughout life and your discipline and everything you've done and are doing that we can make a discipline to help our relationships with God? Yeah. So relationships with God specifically. You can do others as well. Yeah. I mean, we have talked about it a little bit, but I will just say um, it's when things become it's when things become routine in in the background mm-hmm. where we stop active relationship. Mm-hmm. Like I would say it stops becoming something where we are invested in, right? If it's something that you like kind of just have, like I'm a Christian, I believe in God, all my friends believe in God. I go to chapel and I sing. And if it just becomes like this, like if you start to feel like you're doing motions, but you don't feel right. If you're not having the feeling Mm -hmm. it's habituation. And the quickest way is to just bring attention to it and think about it and then see, okay, what can I do to shake it up? Mm -hmm. Right. Like you, you know, you hear like the spice of life is variety, Mm -hmm. change it up, talk to someone new or think about a question that you have about God or read a different book or, you know, decide to actually be more present, cognitively present in chapel Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. Vespers and start to see how the feelings you have about your relationship with God change and you feel them again. Yeah. Well, I would like to thank you again, mm. Dr. Anderson, for joining me on this episode and on this journey of like relationships yeah, in general. Yeah, yeah. I'm God happy to come back and talk anytime. Cause All right, this is so, so tomorrow, fun. same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Saturday tomorrow, Seth. <sighs> You're right. They don't pay me on Saturdays. They don't. So. Well, I could pay you with food. I'm joking. <laughs> you know? Well, I'll be busy probably oh, on Saturdays. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, well, this was great. I had yes. a lot of fun. Thank you again. Thanks.